turn with me in your Bible, if you would, to the New Testament, to the letter of Paul to Titus, chapter 2. Titus, chapter 2. We'll read the entire chapter. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, or another, that's an old word for stealing, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. The text for this afternoon's sermon is taken from Titus chapter 2, though we won't look at it in detail, but we want to look at the subject of good works. So Titus 2 verse 7, let me direct your attention to that, especially the first phrase. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. And let us take that together with what our Heidelberg Catechism teaches us in Lord's Day 33, which deals with uh, the, the nature and the parts of true conversion which we looked at on a previous occasion, and this afternoon we want to look at just question and answer 91. You can find it on page 68 in the back of your Psalter. After having set forth what true conversion is and what it looks like, it had ended answer 90 with, and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works, and now 91. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God and to his glory 
and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men thus far. Dear congregation, what is the proof that someone has been converted? Well, what fruits are there in his life? That's the answer that the Lord Jesus gives when he gives the illustration of a tree in Luke chapter 6, verse 44. And he says, every tree is known by its fruits. Right, boys and girls, you don't get wormy apples off of a healthy tree. And you don't get good apples from a diseased tree. And if a bad tree has been transformed and been made a good tree, then that will be seen in the fruits that come to hang from its branches. And that's how it is too when your heart is changed by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Then someone put it like this, your true being brims over in the words you speak and the deeds you do. Not perfectly in the Christian life, but nonetheless, some of, something of that can be seen, for true conversion comes with fruit. That too is what Paul said in answer to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, as he's on trial and he gives his testimony and tells how the Lord called him. And seeing that vision meant that he could not walk away from that vision just like that, instead He had turned to Christ by faith and he began to preach to the Jews and to the Gentiles, what? That they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for, works that go along with repentance. Paul saying that to Agrippa. I began to preach the call to repentance, this life change, this radical turn to God and Everything it means in everyday life, it has an impact. Repentance, you see, will become noticeable. People should be able to see that in the life of holiness, in a Christ-like life. And that's why Paul is saying to Titus, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. Now what does that pattern look like? What does that model and example look like? And what motivates the believer to live like that? Well, our catechism wants to explain that, and we want to look at that. Our theme is a pattern of good works. A pattern of good works. We'll see three things. It proceeds from true faith. Secondly, it conforms to God's law. And thirdly, it aims for God's glory. A pattern of good works. First of all, it proceeds from true faith. Secondly, it conforms to God's law. And thirdly, it aims for God's glory. So true conversion results in good fruits, good works. Our catechism puts it this way in question answer 90. Conversion results in this, that with love and delight, that I live according to the will of God in all good works. Now, 
I realize sometimes when we think about good works, then we think of some special deeds that we do every once in a while, maybe, some extras in the Christian life, some kind deeds that we do every once in a while, works of charity, maybe like feeding the poor or shoveling the driveway of an elderly neighbor or giving generously and caring for those in need. But our catechism, speaking of good works, is talking about living the Christian life in your everyday life, in the little things at home and at work and at school, in the mundane of every day. That's, that's what is meant with good works. It's talking about how you are as a father how you are as a mother, how you are as a student, how you are as a worker. It covers how you work, how you play, how you are in your living room, and how you are at the kitchen table. Yes, it covers even something as basic as eating and drinking. And then you see that good works includes a whole life of holiness, For you see, the opposite of good works is bad works. The opposite of a Christ-like life is a selfish life or a sinful life. And so, friends, every thought, action, motive, and moment is either holy or unholy. It's either a bad thing or a good thing. But now, what are good works, then? What makes up this reality in the Christian life? How do we know what is good and what is not good in God's sight? And our catechism answers it with biblical wisdom and also pastoral guidance. Yes, because the first reaction of many of us to that question, what are good works now? Think of what kind of answer you would have given. Do you want to know what a good work is? what pleases him, what living a life of holiness is like, then I think that many of us would say, well, God's law tells us what is good and what is not good. God's law tells us what pleases him and what doesn't please him. Now, that's a very important truth, and we need to be directed to the law of God, and we hope to come to the law of God, but then in our second point, Our catechism doesn't begin there. For if that's all you say, and if that's all you do is point people to the law of God, you run stuck. Because the law of God is powerless to help you to obey. The law of God is powerless to help you live a holy life. The law of God can issue its demands. That's what it can do. The law of God can threaten us for our disobedience. The law of God can expose us where our works are are not good, but it cannot help us to do what is good in our home life and work life and school life. The law by itself cannot enable us to please God. It has no power to do so. In order to do good works, we have to start somewhere else. And our catechism says we need to start with true faith. True faith is where it starts. 
And that's how our catechism says simply what the Bible says. For instance, in Romans 14, verse 23, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Or Hebrews 11, verse 6, for without faith it is impossible to please God. Obedience without faith is not possible. But why does our catechism say this? After all, we are not in the second part of the catechism anymore. We're not in the section on deliverance. We're in the third part of the catechism. We're in the part of thankfulness. And you might expect this emphasis on faith just in the section on deliverance. For in the section on deliverance, the gospel doesn't say to the unconverted, well, you have to do this and you have to do that. No, the gospel call to the unconverted is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But now what does the word of God say to those who have come to trust in him? What does the Lord say about the Christian desiring to live a life of thankfulness, the life of daily conversion, the life of holiness? Then the Lord doesn't say now, Here, I've got a list of rules for you. Just do this and just do that. No, it also starts with, do you want to know how to live the holy life, the Christian life, a Christ-like life, a life of daily conversion? Then it starts here as well. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Every day, the life of thankfulness, the life of daily conversion, the life of holiness begins here. You see, every day we need grace again. Oh, and I know we have different kind of days. We have good days and we have bad days. But on our best of days, we are not so good that we don't need God's grace. And on our worst of days, we are not so bad that we're beyond the reach of his grace. So whether we have a good day or a bad day, each day again we need the grace of Christ. Each day again we need to trust in Christ. Each day we need him. And faith goes out after him. Yes, for grace Each day we need sin-forgiving grace, don't you? I do. Each day we need heart-renewing grace, don't you? I do. Each day we need life-changing grace, don't you? I do. And each day God is willing to give you grace. His mercies are new every morning. Each day the fountain is there, still running. Each day you can bathe there. And there is no other way to do what is good in God's eyes than by believing in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on your behalf. That's the gospel way. That's where the life of holiness begins. It doesn't begin with, well, now that I'm saved, I just have to try harder. Now that I'm saved, I just have to be better. I have to improve my life somehow. No! 
The life of holiness says, keep looking unto Jesus. Keep trusting in his finished work. Keep taking refuge to his cross. We're not just justified by faith in Christ. We're to live by faith in Christ. Turn with me, if you would, so I can show you that out of the scriptures to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, where Paul also gives a little bit of his biography of how the Lord led him. And then in Galatians 2 verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul, uh, the apostle who sets forth uh, the justification of the sinner, of the ungodly by faith, also talks about the Christian life, personally, biographically, as being a life of faith. I live by faith. In the Son of God. The life you see me living is by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know what would happen if you were to try and live a life of holiness apart from faith? We would be stuck in despair trying to do it by ourselves. But without a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing we would do would please God. After all, our best efforts are sin-contaminated, grease-stained, filthy rags. No matter how holy you are outwardly, no matter how much progress you've made in the Christian life, Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that. We can't offer to God a single holy deed left to ourselves, even in the life of holiness and sanctification. And that's how our catechism is saying that the life of holiness begins with true faith. Before you even start to do what's good, you go to Christ. You rest in Him. You trust in His cross. You depend on His prayers of intercession to cleanse with His blood all you do. Because His blood cleanses all you do to make it good in God's sight. We need to begin each day with Christ, not with the law. Don't get me wrong, the law is the standard for the Christian life. But without Christ, we will have rules without a relationship. Without Christ, we will have tactics without trust. Without Christ, we will have disciplines maybe, but no dependence on Christ. And we may be trying to live the Christian life without growing any closer to Christ. But apart from Christ, we are as powerless as a branch cut off from the vine. And that's why we repeatedly fall 
And our resolves fail because we're trying to do it in our own strength, because we're not resorting to Christ, because faith has lost sight of the object and it's turned inward. J.I. Packer says the holiest Christians are not so concerned about the Christian life so much, but they're taken up with Christ. Friends, do we turn to him every day again? Do we seek him every day again? Do we trust him every day again? Do we see our need for him, not just for justification, but also for the life of sanctification? Do we flee to him? to cleanse our best of deeds by his blood and by his grace. But there's more. For yes, we need to start our day by looking in faith to God's Son. And that's something that the Spirit loves to do when we wake up in the morning and we come to and we realize where we are and who, uh, what our task is. Should that not be an, a, res- a time to resort to the Lord? But that faith should not come alone. Yes, we begin by looking in faith to God's Son and God's promises and God's grace. But that's also meant to stir us to love. As Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, The life that I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Faith and love go together. Remembering his love by faith stirs love in return. Or as Paul will say a few pages later in Galatians 5 or 6, this faith in the Christian worketh by love. Faith expresses itself in love. Faith manifests itself in love. How important that is. After all, Christ says that the greatest commandment is to love God above all and to love your neighbor as yourself. And isn't that how the Christian life is summed up by a call to love? Now such love is only possible when you're connected to Christ as the branch is connected to the vine and drawing upon his sap of his love and his grace. Do you understand that? In the life of holiness, your heart must be involved. Your obedience is to be an expression of love, not a substitute for love. And boys and girls, I think you understand this. I mean, children, if your mom asks you to do something and you do it, but all the time you're doing it, you're pouting and you're moaning and you're dragging your feet and you're pulling faces, is it really obedience? Or maybe according to the letter of the law, you did what mom asked you to do. But according to the spirit of the law, your feet dragging, face pulling, pouting and moaning isn't good. And don't we need forgiveness for our half-hearted obedience? For doing maybe the right thing for the wrong reason. Doing it with an unwilling heart. But in the Christian life, faith is needed so that it expresses itself in love. 
And that means that the Pharisaic obedience won't do. Pharisees, and we're all capable of being Pharisees, Pharisees are experts at coming up with a list of outward rules of do's and don'ts that avoid a heart of love. A Pharisee can come up with rules so that you technically obey, so that you can pat yourself on the shoulder and say, what a good boy I am, or what a good girl I am, but you're looking down at others and condemning others because they're not obeying your list of rules of do's and don'ts. And that can be the case in conservative circles where outward decency can mask inward pride. Outward decency can hide our greed. Outward decency can mask envy and a quiet contempt we feel for others. Only obedience proceeding from faith that works by love is obedience. Otherwise, it's sin. Even all the outward rules that you do without faith and love is sin. Someone has called it a splendid sin. It looks good. Just like Jesus said that on that one occasion, it can look beautiful like whitewashed tombs, manicured grave plots. Those are some of the most manicured places, uh, cemeteries. But six feet down, it's full of rotten bones and worm-eaten flesh. That's how we can be, looking decent outwardly, but full of pride and full of greed and feeling contempt on the inside for others. And if that's what our obedience is, just a matter of tradition and outward rules, it stinks. You see why we need Christ and faith in Christ that stirs us to love and that motivates obedience and obedience that conforms to God's law. That's our second point. The pattern of good works proceeds from true faith, but it conforms to God's law. Yes, we need a standard of right and wrong. And our catechism says that standard is God's law. But what about our conscience? Can't that be our guide? Sure, there is the rule of our conscience. Romans 14, verse 23, uh, where Paul had said, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. In that chapter, Romans 14, Paul is dealing with conscience. Some weaker believers thought you had to keep Jewish food laws from the Old Testament. And other Jewish believers realized that such ceremonial laws no longer apply to the New Testament church, and that created a problem. And Paul has to address that in Romans 14. What were you supposed to do if you thought it was wrong to have a pork chop? And then you went to someone's house, and they served you pork chops. And Paul is saying if you eat pork chops with your conscience saying, don't do it, then you sin. 
deep down you believe that what you're doing is forbidden by God, then don't go against your conscience, Paul says. So there is a place for our conscience. And even if your conscience is wrong, when you violate your conscience, you sin. But we do need to be careful, for our conscience is fallible. Our conscience can make mistakes. It can tell us that something is wrong, when it may not be wrong. It can tell us something is right, when it actually may be wrong. I mean, if you want an illustration, think of your clock at home. A clock is supposed to keep time. Sometimes it runs too fast, or sometimes it runs too slow. The clock can be off, so you have to adjust your clocks from time to time, and that's how it is with our conscience. Our conscience can become too strict, or our conscience can become too lenient. And so it needs to be checked, and it needs to be adjusted from time to time, and it needs to be checked and adjusted by God's standard, the standard of God's law. And that's why our catechism says, in answer to the question, what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God. There you have it performed according to the law of God, and at the end of the sentence it clarifies, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. So it speaks of the importance of faith, but also obedience to God's law. Only those which conform to God's law. Now, it's important to emphasize this because we live in a time in which the church at large is confused at this point. Because when they hear the church at large, I mean the broader evangelical church and also reformed churches, they will take a text like Romans 6 verse 14 where Paul says we are not under the law anymore, but under grace Does that mean that there is no place for the law anymore? Well, the believer is free from the curse of the law. And the believer is free from the condemnation of the law. The believer doesn't have to try to earn God's approval by keeping the law. He receives God's approval through grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Plus, We don't expect the law to empower us to live the Christian life. It doesn't have the power to animate us in the life of holiness. In that sense, too, we need grace to live the Christian life. But that text doesn't, that text from Romans 6 verse 14 doesn't mean that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, has been set aside. Jesus said in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to abolish the law. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 31, do we then make void the law by faith? He's asking, are we canceling the careful keeping of what God has commanded? God forbid. Actually, he answers, we establish the law. So when someone says we don't have to keep God's moral law anymore, the Ten Commandments, I want to ask, would it be fine for a Christian to murder someone? Or would it be fine for a Christian to be sinfully angry with someone? 
Would it be fine for a Christian to commit adultery? Would it be fine for a Christian to give his heart to lust and pornography? Would it be fine for a Christian to covet and to lie and to steal and to worship idols and to take God's name in vain, to trample on the Sabbath? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, verse 15. The problem is with man's wicked heart. Because by nature, man hates the law of God deep down. The Pharisee hates the law of God and the publican hates the law of God. They both hate it. The strict person, the Pharisee, hates it and does his best to come up with the outward rules of do's and don'ts to, to make it manageable, to keep the law in his own strength and to say, well, I'm better than others. And, and, I, and he keeps God's law at a distance from him and it doesn't expose him and it doesn't convict him. And the publican, on the other hand, the lenient person, hates the law of God too and tries to set it aside. But God hasn't set the law aside and we can't set it aside. In fact, when the Spirit works in our hearts and in our lives, then we come to love it. The law of God, it shows us our sin and while that's not pleasant, it needs to come out so that we would be drawn unto the Lord Jesus Christ and so that we would see what honors God. Yes, we come to love the law of God. Oh, how love I thy law. I know the sinful nature doesn't, but that's why we need the constant roadblocks of the law to keep us in line, to spell out what's right and wrong, what Someone has used the, one minister has used the illustration of a bowling alley. Maybe boys and girls, you've been to a bowling alley before. It's nice to go bowling sometimes, isn't it? You take this ball and you throw it down and you hope, you throw it down the, uh, the, 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 the lane and you hope that it will knock down some pins. But maybe especially when you're younger, it just goes in the gutter every time and you don't get any bowling pins down but thankfully bowling alleys have they have uh, those those guards at the the side those railings and if you have railings up then no matter where you hit the ball within those railings it will knock down some pins and that's how we need the the railings too of you can say faith and the law of God, faith and love that tells us what honors him and what keeps him. That's why, yes, we need those roadblocks of the law of God, keeping us in line, spelling out what's right and wrong, what love looks like. We can't just leave it to our own imagination. People come up with all kinds of strange things. One man came to me convinced that he had to eat porridge and that that, was, that would make him holy based on the, a text from Daniel. Some man thought by his imagination that him picking up worms and throwing them into the grass after a big downpour, that that was a good thing. Man can come up with strange rules 
to try and make him think that he's pretty decent. But love for God means smashing our idols so that we would worship him uprightly. Love for God means honoring his name. Love for God means keeping the Sabbath. Love for our neighbor means not hurting, but caring for others. Not lying, but telling the truth. Not stealing, but working and sharing as we're able. Not coveting what is our neighbor's, but being thankful for what we have. God's law spells out what does the love of God uh, that he requires of us look like. And without it, without his law, we go terribly wrong. And just look around. What's happening in our society, in our country, uh, that, that has set God's law aside? It leads to chaos, selfishness, people using one another. Broken marriages, broken families, corporate scandals. People want to do whatever they want. Drink as much as they want. Sleep with whoever they want. Abort the child in an unwanted pregnancy. And all the while they feel miserable and not happy. And people feel used, not loved. And young people, that's where a life without the law will lead you. But it's not just that others need the law outside the church. We need the law inside the church. Because without the law of God, the the sin that's in us will hijack our thinking. It will drag us into the mires of sin. We need the law to prod us. We need the law to us. We need the law to remind us. We need the law of God to restrain us. We need the law to awaken us, to teach us right from wrong. And that's why we come to God's house on the Lord's Day. We've been bombarded in the past week with, with sin, advertisements, co-workers and neighbors promoting ungodly things. And sometimes you discover that your heart secretly wants to go along with them. And then the law is like a hammer to get your attention, to shake you awake and to say, but don't you realize what a great wickedness it is in a sin against God? Do you know what happens when you don't have the law of God? You get the bondage of being left to your own opinions or human tradition, which today is political correctness. And man-made rules about marriage, family, gender. And you can't say anything against it, for that will result in a fine or imprisonment. That's what happens when you set God's law aside. But such man-made laws, not based on God's law, only hurts people. And it leaves people scarred and broken. But what about us? Do you see what a rich blessing God gives us in his law? The call to love. And the law that shows us what love looks like. 
law, law without love, is hard-nosed legalism. And love without law is sentimentalism that quickly turns into selfishness and leads to brokenness. And we have the law, every, every, we have it read every Sunday. The law is preached from time to time. And do you say, oh, how love I thy law. Even when the law hammers your conscience and exposes your sin and prods you and rebukes you and shows you your need for grace again that there is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we need to search our lives? Your conscience may be stricter than God's law in some places. And in some places, your conscience may be too lenient. Your conscience, like a clock, needs to be tuned and adjusted. And do you do this? Are you desiring to know what pleases God? Do you want to obey cheerfully, uh, thoroughly, all what he says? Friends, don't make other people the standard. Not even other church people the standard. Not even your parents the standard. Not even the pastor the standard. The law of God is the standard. Only that is inspired. Only that is infallible. And are there areas in our lives where we're fudging? Because we're becoming too lenient And we're not letting the law of God speak into the specifics of our lives. The law is going to test us in the coming months. And and it's going to tune our consciences of it right. And do we welcome that? And do we pray, Lord, show me the Savior. And teach me thy statutes. Do you ever pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And if you can't say that, shall you not ask the Lord to save you and to teach you? We've seen what the pattern of good works is supposed to look like. It proceeds from true faith conforms to God's law, and finally it aims for the glory of God. It aims for God's glory. And we come back to the motive that we should have. And here again, our catechism reaches straight into our hearts. It asks you, why do you do what you do? The primary motive in everything must be love for God's glory and honor. Yes, even in your eating and drinking. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 puts it like this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Our our Christian living and doing is to flow from a desire to do all to the glory of God. Without that love and desire for His glory... Our Christian words and our Christian deeds are empty and hollow. And then we're lukewarm. And then he wants to spit us out of his mouth, Revelation 3, verse 16. Imagine if he said that about us. You're stale. 
You're stagnant. You've become lukewarm. You want to make me vomit. The Lord has a divine disgust when we lack that love and desire for His glory. You see, motive matters. And if our primary motive is not love for God's honor, then outwardly we can do the right thing. But inwardly we're guilty of sin. Remember how Jesus exposed the Pharisees at this point? They pray on the street corners. They sound the trumpet when they give to the poor. Now, prayer is obviously a good thing, and and giving to the needy is a good thing, and you can pray and give to others even in public, but sometimes that's all people do it for. They strut around like peacocks, trying to catch the attention of others with their religious works. And that's what Jesus is saying. They were doing it more to impress people than to honor God. People might find it impressive, but God finds it repulsive. Friends, why do we do what we do? Do we do it to be noticed by others? Do we do it to impress others? Do we do it because we have to? Or because we want to? Or do you do it because you want to honor God? Because you've come to love Him? And his honor. Why do you do what you do? Is it because you grew up doing it? It's tradition? Or because you are convinced this is to God's glory? Why did you come to church this afternoon? Was it with hunger in your heart to hear the word of God and to honor him by listening to him and praising him and praying to him? Or was it because you had to? On the outside, we can look decent. But on the inside, your motive determines whether it's a good work or not. Whether it was by faith, working by love, and seeking God's honor. Why did you put money in the collection bag? Is it because you have to? Because you want to? Why do you try to do what is right? Do you do it out of a fear of God's wrath or is it out of a love for his neighbor? Do you see how impure our motives can be? How mixed our motives can be? And Paul is saying to Timothy, and he's asking us, are we sh- he's, he's saying to Titus, and he's asking us, are we showing ourselves in all things to be a pattern of good works? Are we showing ourselves an example of God, good works? Yeah, Paul is saying to Titus, it's, it, he's calling him to a total consecration in all things. He's calling him to Personal consecration, showing yourself. We're called to a life of integrity, not, not just teaching one thing and living another thing. And we're called to even do it visibly, to be a pattern of good works, going against the flow, seeking to be like Christ 
imitating him. That's how we are to live the Christian life. Trusting in Christ. Loving through Christ. Living according to his law and being motivated by his glory. And without it, our life is just a splendid sin. And where does that leave us then? Well, it proves what Romans 3 verse 12 says. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. And maybe someone was listening this afternoon who always prided himself on keeping the letter of the law. You tried your best. You worked hard. You don't get into trouble. You were a model child. But as you listen to God's standard for good works, you realize that you're doing it for yourself. To just ease your conscience a little. Or you're doing it for others to gain the approval of others and not out of a love for the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I need Christ. And maybe you've never realized it before, but you desperately need Christ even to live a life of service and obedience. Go to him, even now. Confess to him that you're impure and imperfect. What if he should mark our sins? Then we would be hopelessly lost. And therefore we should plead, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's how this Lord's Day leaves you and me with only one option. To flee to Christ. How can we do good works? Only by a true faith in Christ. And when you take refuge to Him by faith, and you desire to live out of Him, then His grace and His blood cleanses your works so that through Christ it's well-pleasing to Him. And by His Holy Spirit, He grants you love and He grants you grace and you need it every day and you ask for it and you want to live out of it in thankfulness. Friends, without the Lord Jesus Christ for justification and sanctification, we can only despair. But with Christ, we have hope. Amen.